would invite you to take your Bibles or turn in the bulletin to the scripture reading that you'll see. Uh, We're going to be looking at several different passages today. The one I'll read to you is from Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 26. Just a reminder of what we're doing. Uh, Last week and this week, uh, normally uh, what we do at Trinity is we work our way through books of the Bible. Uh, We most recently were working our way through the book of Revelation. And then this summer, we actually uh, were spending the summer in the Psalms and looking at a number of the Psalms. And uh, in just a couple of weeks, we we, we will start a new sermon series on the book of 2 Samuel. Uh, But uh, occasionally there are times that it's good to address particular themes that the Bible gives us. And uh, because of the fact that we are restarting the Lord's Supper today after a six-month hiatus, the session thought it might be helpful for us to have a couple sermons on the Lord's Supper. So last week and this week, we've been looking at these passages that are there printed in your bulletin for you. And uh, last week, we were looking at what the Lord's Supper is. And if you're looking at the outline, the sermon outline, you'll see that really it was there's first four points in the outline that we covered last week about what the Lord's Supper is. Today, we're going to be looking at those last five points in your outline, which is what the Lord's Supper does. So last week, what the Lord's Supper is this week, what the Lord's Supper does. Let me read to you from Matthew chapter 26. Now, as they that's Jesus and the disciples were eating. Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we do pray that through the work of the Holy Spirit, you would open our eyes to see wonderful things from this portion of your word. Teach us. Help us, Father. We pray that we would be receptive to your word and that it would be a great joy to us. And even as we talk about the Lord's Supper today and see what you've instructed us in your word about the Lord's Supper, help us to be to be. Understanding your gospel of grace, which undergirds everything in the Lord's Supper. May we see that today through the work of your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When did the most controversial Lord's Supper take place? I see many furrowed brows. Some might suggest that the most controversial Lord's Supper was the one we just read about in Matthew chapter 26. As Jesus gathered his disciples in the upper room and he helped them to see the Passover was now being reformed in their minds and hearts to focus primarily on him as it had been all along. But now it was being being revealed more fully. I'm sure that the Jewish religious leaders would not have been happy that Jesus was Uh, reinterpreting, if you will, the Passover. Perhaps that was the most controversial Lord's Supper, but maybe there's a contender to it. July 20th, 1969, at around 2.15 Central Time. That was the day and the time that the Apollo 11's Eagle Lunar Module landed on the moon with astronauts Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin. 
They landed on the moon, but before NASA would allow them to open the door and take a stroll on the face of the moon, they were required to stay put for a couple of hours. They wanted them to rest. They wanted them to recover from uh, the, the, the incredible uh, work that they had done to just get to the surface of the moon. And so they had a couple of hours there in the lunar module, and that's when it happened. Buzz Aldrin was not only a NASA astronaut, he also served as an elder at the Webster Presbyterian Church, the PCUSA Church, in Houston, Texas. And he had worked out beforehand with his church leaders as well as with the NASA administrators to bring communion elements with him to the moon. With the weight before stepping out onto the moon's surface, he decided that the time was right. So he said a few words of explanation. He read a scripture passage. He said a prayer. And then he brought out the elements that had been prepackaged for him. And he partook in the bread and in the wine. Now, that's probably one of the more controversial Lord's Suppers that you've never heard of before. NASA had been sued a few years earlier after the Apollo 8 mission because the astronauts on that mission had actually read from the Bible during the mission from Genesis, the book of Genesis. And NASA had been sued as a result of that. Now, that suit had been dismissed, but NASA was still cognizant of the fact that there was much controversy out there with bringing God's word into something like uh, a moon landing. And so they told Buzz Aldrin that he could take the elements with him. He could participate in the Lord's Supper, but they wanted him to keep it quiet, keep it general, keep it low key and not to do it on the surface of the moon, to do it in the lunar module if he must do it anywhere. And as a result, there was very little, if any, publicity about the event, uh, even after the fact. Now, I have a couple reasons why I think it probably wasn't the best idea for him to serve himself communion uh, on the moon. And if you want to know what those are, you can ask me later. But it does raise a question in our minds. Why would he want to do the Lord's Supper on the moon anyway? Why take the unplanned luggage, if you were, if you will, uh, with him on the flight to the moon? Why alter the protocols that had been set in place by the NASA administrators? We don't know Buzz Aldrin's deep reasons. He kept fairly quiet about that. But I think that most people believe that he did it mostly for sentimental reasons. I mean, it is kind of cool to celebrate the Lord's Supper for the very first time off of the planet Earth. And on the very edge of space. And some probably even thought that he was closer to God at that moment. It raises a legitimate question. What does the Lord's Supper do anyway? Is it just something for us to remember what Jesus did? Or is there something that the Lord's Supper does to us? Is there something that the Lord's Supper does in us? That's what we're going to look at today. What does the Lord's Supper do? Five things. The first one is this. Jesus promised benefits for true believers as they would take the Lord's Supper. Now, where do we see that in these passages that are printed for you in your bulletin? Well, again, go back to the Matthew chapter 26 passage. Jesus 
as they were eating the, 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 the meal, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat. This is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Paul, in his recount of this in the first Corinthians 11 passage, specifically says that Jesus said that his body was given for us and that his blood was being poured out for us. If you look down at the first Corinthians 10 passage, you'll see in verse 16 that as Paul is talking about the Lord's Supper, he talks about it and says that the cup is a cup of blessing. The Lord's Supper's cup is a cup of of blessing. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, in looking at the scriptures and seeing what the scriptures teach about the Lord's Supper, in, in question 88 says that Jesus communicates to us the benefits of redemption through the word, through prayer, and through the sacraments. And, and then, if you will uh, turn with me to John, back to John chapter 6, it's the passage right after we read in our scripture reading earlier in the service, uh, John chapter uh, chapter six, down in verse 50, as Jesus continues to speak to the to the crowd and to the others that were gathered there, he says in verse 50, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in him. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I, and, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate. And died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Now it's clear that Jesus was teaching as we look at all of these passages, not just the John passage, but Matthew passage and Peter, uh, uh, Paul's recount of it in 1 Corinthians 11, that Jesus was teaching that the Lord's Supper was something, than, something more than just for us to remember, a memorial. The Lord's Supper communicates blessings. It communicates benefits for those who take it in true faith. So what are some of those benefits? Well, the first thing I want to say to you is this, that the Lord's Supper doesn't actually give us any benefits. The Lord's Supper doesn't just give us benefits because we partake in it. The benefits that we get, the blessings that we get are given to us only by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Holy Spirit's at work. But the Lord's Supper points to, attests to benefits that we have because we are in Christ Jesus. It encourages us with benefits that are ours because we are Christians. It, it, in a sense, it is a visual sermon, as some have called it. It's a visual sermon of Jesus's body and blood that are given for us. His life and death 
for the purpose of redeeming us. In the Lord's Supper, we see that we are united to Jesus by faith. And what that means is that what he has achieved, we get credit for. In Jesus, we get the benefits of his perfect life of love and obedience and his sacrificial death paying for our sins. As we partake in the Lord's Supper, we are pointed to the reality of our redemption, that we have been elected before the foundation of the world, that we have been called effectually by the Holy Spirit, that our hearts have been changed, have been regenerated from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh by the Holy Spirit, that we have been given faith to put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we have been given the ability to repent of our sins and to turn to our God, that He has justified us, that He has declared us righteous in His sight, that He has adopted us into His family, that He is at work causing us to grow in holiness and sanctification, becoming more and more and more like our Savior in love and obedience and the promise of our glorification that is coming when Jesus returns. The Lord's Supper points us to all of these rich blessings that are ours because of Christ. It doesn't give us those things simply by partaking, but it points us to those blessings that are given in Christ Jesus. As we meditate on these wonderful blessings, as we meditate on these wonderful benefits that are ours in Christ, then we start to see, secondly, how as we partake in the Lord's Supper, we are nourished. Our souls are nourished. Now, isn't it interesting? Of all the different pictures that God could have used, in His providence, both in the Passover and in the Lord's Supper, God chose to use the image of food and drink. Now, think about that for a second. Now, we've always just had that and understood that. God could have used any Image, picture uh, for us, he could have used a flower, he could have used the sunshine, he could have used anything to point us to various benefits and blessings that we have because of our redemption in the Lord Jesus Christ. But he chose the elements of bread and wine. In Matthew chapter 26 and in 1 Corinthians 11, we read that it's a meal that we take together. He used elements of a physical nourishment for our bodies. It's a powerful image. The Lord's Supper nourishes our soul as food and drink nourishes our bodies. We feed spiritually on Jesus. That's what Jesus was talking about in John chapter 6. I want you to think of it this way. Think of another means of grace, the word of God. Maybe it's easier for you to, to get this sense of being nourished when you read the Word of God, when you study the Word of God, when you meditate on the Word of God, when you memorize the Word of God. The Holy Spirit comes in and encourages you and feeds you and nourishes your faith and nourishes your soul. And so it is with the Lord's Supper, another means of grace. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, when we take in faith, the Holy Spirit is at work, nourishing us, strengthening us. Now, how does he do that? What are some ways that our, our faith is nourished? Well, the Lord's Supper helps to strengthen our faith. Our faith is not static. It's not an on or off switch. 
Now, I recognize, and it's completely right and true, that we either have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ or we don't. We're either in Christ or we're not. And that can't ultimately change. It's a work of God's Spirit in our hearts. But those who are in Christ have a faith that is always in a state of growth or decline. We're either growing stronger or weaker in our faith. That's why the Lord gives us means, tools to grow in our faith, to strengthen our faith like the Lord's Supper. As we come in faith and we partake in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit's at work building our faith, strengthening our faith more and more. The Lord's Supper nourishes us too because it builds and strengthens our assurance. Assurance as well is not static. As we come to the table, we hear and we remember that Jesus' body and his blood was not just given generally, but to cover my sins. As we come to the table, we, we hear that Jesus went and died on the cross, not in just some general way, but for my sins. Nowhere in Scripture Does it say that my sin is too great for Jesus to pay for and to conquer on the cross? So as we meditate on the body and the blood of our Savior, his life and his death, his active obedience and his passive obedience, our assurance of our faith grows. The Lord's Supper also nourishes us by reminding us of Jesus' coming again. Remember at the end of the 1 Corinthians passage, chapter 11, verse 26, uh, Paul says, As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until when? Until he comes. When we take the Lord's Supper, we remember, this is not the last day unless Jesus comes back today. But there is a last day when Jesus will come back. Every time we participate, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That word proclaim means to announce, to declare, to preach, to make known. And we are doing that every time we come to the table, to the watching world and to ourselves and to one another. We reinforce the truth that no matter how good we feel like today is... Or how bad it is. Jesus is coming back again. Every time we take the supper. It's a reminder of that. It's a reminder that Jesus has promised. He is coming again. And when he comes. The eternal reward that is coming for us. Will make the best things we have in this life. Pale in comparison. And the hardest and most difficult things. Pass away from our memories. The Lord's Supper is nourishment for our souls, not just by taking it, not just by going through the motions of it, but by the work of the Holy Spirit as we come in faith. Thirdly, the Lord's Supper should produce gratitude in us. Uh, Did you notice back in the Matthew passage, Matthew chapter 26, after they got done with the Lord's Supper, what did they do? Verse 30, when they had sung a hymn, they went out. Now, we're not told what that hymn was. Wouldn't it be nice to know, have an inspired hymn that we could sing as we finish the Lord's Supper every Sunday? No, we're not told what that hymn was, but I can only imagine it was a hymn of thanksgiving. 
It was a hymn of gratitude for what they had just experienced, even if they didn't understand it completely. How much more so for us? And even more than that, we read earlier in Matthew and in 1 Corinthians 11 that when Jesus was giving the elements to his disciples, what did he do? He gave thanks for it. If Jesus gives thanks for the Lord's Supper, how much more so should we as Jesus' disciples be filled with gratitude and thanksgiving as we take the Lord's Supper? It should be a, we should have a mindset of gratitude as we come to the table. Everything that the Lord has done for us, is doing for us, promises to do for us, should fill us with a mindset of gratitude. But it shouldn't just be a mindset of gratitude. It should also move us and motivate us to a life of gratitude. If you look again at the 1 Corinthians 10 passage... Uh, Paul is talking about the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 10. And and as he comes there in 1 Corinthians 10, uh, verse 21, he makes this comment that you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Now, what's he talking about? He's addressing these Christians and saying, as you come to the Lord's table, as you are filled with thanksgiving, as you're filled with gratitude, you can't be double-minded. It's not just being thankful with your lips and with your mind. It's having a life of gratitude. It's having a life of thanksgiving. That's why Paul said in Romans chapter 2, the kindness of God is meant to lead us to repentance. As we meditate on the kindness of God, the loving kindness, His steadfast love, His grace and His mercy, as we come to the table, we meditate on these things. It should move us to gratitude, to thanksgiving. Our own Westminster Confession of Faith points this out. It's actually one of the chapters that I have printed for you on page 9 in your bulletins for reflection later in the service. The first paragraph of chapter 29 on the Lord's Supper says this. Our Lord Jesus, in the night wherein he was betrayed, instituted the sacrament of his body and blood called the Lord's Supper to be observed in his church unto the end of the world for the perpetual remembrance of the sacrifice of himself in his death. The sealing all benefits thereof unto true believers, their spiritual nourishment and growth in him, and then this phrase, their further engagement in and to all duties which they owe unto him and to be a bond and pledge of their communion with him. As we partake of the Lord's Supper, one of the things that it's meant to do in our hearts and our minds and our lives is to further our engagement in and to all of the duties that we owe to our Savior. That's that's a life of gratitude. That's a life of thanksgiving. There's a sense in which every time we come to the Lord's table, we're renewing our covenant vows to the Lord. We're recommitting ourselves to loving him with all of who we are and to love our neighbors as ourselves. We are coming in a bond and pledge to pursue a life of faithful, loving, obedient gratitude. That's something we ought to be thinking about every time we come to the table. Fourthly. The Lord's Supper reminds us of the communion that we have with Jesus through the Holy Spirit. Again, back in the 1 Corinthians 10 passage, uh, verse 16, we read these words. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not 
a participation in the blood of Christ. Now, that's an interesting phrase. The Lord's Supper is a participation in the body and the blood of our Savior. What does that mean? Well, it actually is helpful to know what the Greek word participation means there. It's a word that you may be familiar with. It's the word koinonia. It's the word that means fellowship. It's the word that means communion. It's the word that means a close relationship. You see what Paul is saying here. When we are a Christian, when we are, when we are uh, hearts are regenerated and we are brought into the family of God, we are truly united to Jesus through faith. We are in a close relationship with Him. We have fellowship, we have communion with Jesus. The way that our Westminster Confession of Faith gets at, gets at this idea is to say, how real are the elements that we use? The bread and the wine or the juice. How real are those elements? Well, you can see them. You can touch them. You can smell them. You can taste them. That's how real they are. And in a sense, as real as those elements are, that's how real the fellowship that we have with Jesus is. That's how real the communion is that we have with our Savior. This is actually the reason why every time we serve the Lord's Supper, we, we mention a warning about the Lord's Supper. We do it verbally and often we print it in our bulletin. The Lord's Supper is, is a supper that is meant for those who are in genuine communion, fellowship, relationship with Jesus. To take the Lord's Supper and to not be in relationship or fellowship with Jesus doesn't make sense because of what the supper is about. But even more than not just making sense, it's actually dangerous. That's why Paul gives us the warning that he does in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. To take the Lord's Supper when not in relationship with Jesus Christ means that we are taking it in a manner that is unworthy. It means that we're not discerning, we're not understanding, we're not believing in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Paul's not addressing someone here with a weak faith. Or a shaken faith. He's not addressing people here who have, who have a lack or a weak assurance of their faith. Those people have a genuine faith. They are in communion with Jesus. Even if it's weak and shaken and they lack the assurance of it. Paul is addressing here those who have no faith in Jesus. No relationship. No true communion and fellowship. No koinonia. With our Savior. That's why you'll hear us fence the table, as we call it. We're not calling for some sort of morbid introspection. That's not what Paul's point is here. But we're calling for true and genuine faith in Jesus, even if it's weak and shaken and lacking in assurance. As we partake, we are celebrating communion that we have with Jesus. And then lastly, related to that... The Lord's Supper reminds us that we not only have communion with Jesus, but we have communion, we have, we have unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ. 
Again, the 1 Corinthians 10 passage. Back in verse 16, Paul says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And then down at the the last passage that you have printed for you in your bulletin, 1 Corinthians 12, Paul is talking about spiritual gifts. He's talking about the body of Christ having many members but being unified. And he says in chapter 12, verse 12, Just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. As we come to the Lord's table... We, we have the sense that we have communion and fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ. Christians can and do have many differences. Come from many different church backgrounds. Serving in many different kinds of vocations. Coming from many different ethnicities. From different political convictions and commitments. We even have different beliefs about things like pandemics and wearing masks. But because we are all in Christ, we have been united to Jesus. And so we are connected and united to one another. The connection, the union that we have because of what Jesus has done for us is greater than any of our differences. That's not just some sentimental feeling. That is the truth in actuality. Even if we don't act like it sometimes. When we are in Christ, we have been changed. And now we're part of a new family. The bond that we have in Christ is greater than the differences that we have. There's really no more powerful tool for seeking reconciliation between brothers and sisters in Christ. There's no more powerful tool for motivating Christians to love one another, to be humble and to be patient, kind and generous. Let me finish with just a couple of reminders for us as a church family. The Lord's Supper. This is a, I want you to think about this. this. is a careful distinction I want us to make. The Lord's Supper is not what makes us united. It's not what makes us connected to one another. The Lord's Supper is a sign and a seal of the union of the fellowship that we have with each other because of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's important to understand because... There will be seasons, and we're in one right now, when some in our church family won't be able to or can't partake of the Lord's Supper with the rest of the church family. But we are still united together in fellowship and community. We still have fellowship with one another, even if it doesn't feel like it sometimes. And I am with you. It feels like a season of disrupted fellowship. And disjointed community. But in those times when it feels that way, we believe what is true even more than how it feels. If we're in Christ, we are brothers and sisters in Christ and we have fellowship 
We have communion together that is real. And we must never stop acting like it. Second thing, a reminder, the Lord's Supper is a means of grace. That means it's a tool that God gives us for our benefit to nourish our faith, to strengthen us. But it's not the only means of grace. We have the word of God. We have prayer. We have the fellowship of saints. The Lord's Supper, as we talked about last week, is not of the essence of faith. And so if we have to go a season without it, God will provide what we need in order to be sustained in our faith. There are Christians in the history of the church that have had to go their entire Christian life without the Lord's Supper. The Lord sustains his people and provides for them. So if you're in one of those seasons now, know and trust that God will provide what you need. I'm going to finish the sermon today with a prayer. Again, out of that ancient collection of prayers, the Valley of Vision. I'm going to use this both as a conclusion of the sermon as well as a closing prayer as we transition to the Lord's Supper. God of all good, we bless you for the means of grace. Teach us to see in them your loving purposes and the joy and the strength of our souls. You have prepared for us a feast. And though we are unworthy to sit down as guests, we wholly rest on the merits of Jesus and hide ourselves beneath his righteousness. When we hear his tender invitation and we see his wondrous grace, we cannot hesitate, but must come to you in love. By your spirit, enliven our faith rightly to discern and spiritually to apprehend our Savior. While we gaze on the emblems of our Savior's death, help us to ponder why he died and and to hear him say, I gave my life to purchase yours, presented myself an offering to expiate your sin, shed my blood to blot out your guilt, opened my side to make you clean, endured your curses to set you free, bore your condemnation to satisfy divine justice. Oh, may we rightly grasp the breadth and the length of this design. Draw near, obey, extend the hand, take the bread, receive the cup, eat and drink and testify before all men that we do for ourselves gladly in faith, reverence and love. Receive our Lord to be our life, our strength, our nourishment, our joy, our delight. In in the supper, we remember his eternal love, his boundless grace, his infinite compassion, his agony, the cross, redemption, and receive assurance of pardon, adoption, life, and glory itself. As the outward elements nourish our bodies, so may your indwelling spirit invigorate our souls until that day when we hunger and thirst no more and we sit with Jesus at his heavenly feast. We pray this in his name. Amen.